This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri land, and this is The Full Story. This week, we're taking stock of what we've learned from the biggest stories this year and what it all means for 2023. In the world of climate change action, Australia is back. So today, Guardian Australia's climate and environment editor, Adam Morton, joins me to talk about Australia's floods, koalas, and how the new Labor government is tackling the climate crisis. It's Monday, the 19th of December. So, Adam, we got a new Labor government in May this year, and it has only been six months, but they did promise to end the climate wars. What have they done on climate so far? I think it's fair to say they've made a start, but the cement is still wet, still in the mixer, really. Um, It's very early days. The big change that we've seen since uh, the Albanese government was elected is that we have had climate change legislation, the first in basically a decade. Labor's flagship emissions reduction target has been enshrined into law after passing through the parliament. It was passed in parliament in September with great fanfare. The government's climate change bill passed the Senate, 37 votes for 30. In reality, it was largely symbolic, but I think importantly symbolic. On May 21, the Australian people voted for change. They voted to end the inaction and finally put the climate wars behind us. There wasn't a lot in the bill, but it included climate targets being legislated for the first time um, and the targets were a significant increase on what was being promised under the coalition, a 43% cut by 2030 and net zero by 2050. It's not enough to live up to what the science says Australia should be doing, but it is now there as a as a minimum and hopefully an incentive for companies and investors to see that Australia is serious on climate change and to start putting money into clean solutions. There are a couple other things in the legislation that's worth noting that there's now a requirement that there's an annual climate statement to Parliament. And we heard the first one from the Climate Change Minister, Chris Bowen, late this year. And there's going to be annual advice to the government on what they should be uh, saying in that statement from the Climate Change Authority. We'll give advice each year and including on future targets. And its advice has to be publicly released. So the government has to explain if it doesn't follow it. So they're positive steps. But to be honest, a lot of what else is to come is still early stage. And that's to some extent understandable because it's only been a bit over six months. There's kind of this anticipation build up after so long under the coalition, which we've really done nothing on climate change and gone backwards in many areas that people expect a lot in a hurry. That's understandable. But the government hasn't been standing still and there's a bunch of policies in the works. Adam, while we're waiting for all of these changes to happen over the next year, renewable energy is growing really dramatically. How are we tackling that? I mean, you're right, it's gone really fast. It's gone from a fairly small base to being about a third of what we get in the eastern states now, and it's going to be, according to the federal government, more than 80% by 2030. The federal government wants to speed up the pace that renewables come into the grid. They came to the power with a policy called rewiring the nation. And so it's got a $20 billion set aside. We're talking big connections between states and between regions where a lot of this new renewable energy will be built. Accelerate those transmission links, which have been discussed before. And it's saying it will accelerate what would already be a rapid rollout of renewable energy because renewable energy is so cheap and coal plants are old and dying. So people are building them anyway. 
This will make it happen even faster. We need this because renewable energy is growing in places we didn't have them before. We need to be able to connect them to the grid. Mm. So we're seeing you know, significant investment from the federal government and at the same time, really significant policies at a state level to drive renewable energy. And that's been one of the big things this year. And the states have set really ambitious renewable energy targets and in some cases introduced policies that basically underwrite the construction of new renewable energy. And the big three states up the eastern seaboard in New South Wales, in Queensland this year and Victoria at the most recent election, um, the Andrews government has a policy to get out of coal by 2035, really, and have 95% renewable energy by then. So it's a really dramatic transformation that has been now driven across the board. It's hugely challenging and they're doing it really fast. This is the one area where Australia is genuinely world leading. Well, despite all the progress we're making on renewables and emissions targets, the impact of climate change here in Australia was pretty keenly felt this year. The East Coast experienced extreme flooding and wet weather. How are the floods changing the conversation that we're having on climate change right now? Well, I mean, you know, the bottom line is we're seeing the climate crisis happening. It's here. Um, We've seen extraordinary damage up the East Coast from flooding We've had three La Nina events in a row. This is a weather pattern over the Pacific that leads to increased rain. And we know that uh, the climate crisis is um, sort of loading the dice to make those events worse because warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, leads to heavier rain. And we saw particular devastation in Lismore on the New South Wales north coast. Heavy rain is still falling in the northern rivers tonight with Lismore residents warned to prepare for flooding for the third time this year. Massive destruction, billions in damage, and there were other versions of this. It's opened up a whole bunch of conversations, I think, that we're only just really beginning to grapple with. Uh, one of them is about where we should build, whether we should rebuild in areas of greatest risk Insurance is a rising problem. There are now a vast number of people living in areas, flood zones and other areas where they are going to struggle to get insurance because of the risk of repeat events. And it's a broader issue than just insurance. And we saw a recent report by the banking regulator suggesting that the big banks expect over time to reduce lending to households and businesses in Northern Australia. I mean, that raises big questions about where we're going to live who's going to pay for it, who's going to be out of pocket. So what has the government promised to do to help Australians prepare for disasters like this in the future? There's a range of immediate response measures at state and federal level. Labor federally has got a disaster response fund that it says will pay up to $200 million a year to help in mitigation projects. And that's really, I think, not going to be enough. So we're really at the beginnings of this conversation about how we adapt to inevitable climate change. How do we build resilience into the country to deal with change that's already happening and inevitable change that's locked in? And that means what do we do to prepare for future floods? Uh, What do we do to prepare for worsening cyclones? What do we do to prepare for bushfires? And that can be where do we live? Where do we build? What do we build our homes out of? How do we adapt? We talk a lot more about how we have to cut emissions. We don't focus on that big question of adaptation. And I think that's going to be a big conversation in 2023. Do we know if the floods had an impact on votes in the federal election this year? We have some direct evidence of this. Uh, Rebecca Huntley, who's a social researcher, has done some really interesting work that was funded by the Sunrise Project, looking at why people changed their vote at the federal election this year. 
and uh, she found climate change was the number one reason that people swung the vote towards independence, which was obviously crucial in the result with the big rise of the teal independence, and the number two reason that people changed their vote to Labor. So we are seeing that this is now a real vote driver. So, I mean, this is early evidence and we don't know exactly what the future holds, but it's hard to see how, given the front of mind the climate crisis now is, that this will not remain a big issue in politics and that voters will force it to be a big issue in politics into the coming year. So, Adam, you went to the Global Climate Summit COP27 in Egypt earlier this year. How was Australia received there under the new Labor government and what was our delegation's contribution to those talks? Uh, they were received really well. Um, and this was, a, you know, in part a contrast question because the Morrison government was seen as a laggard and blocker and the Albanese government was not. And Chris Bowen, as the head of the delegation, was seen as playing a proactive role to try and get a better result. One of the key things that the government did was support what became the big push at COP27, which was for the uh, creation of a loss and damage fund to help the most vulnerable countries with um, the unavoidable impact of the climate crisis. And they were seen to play a proactive and positive role in the, in those talks. And the other thing to come from it uh, was that the government's been clear that it would like to host a future COP in partnership with Pacific nations. And that seems more likely than not after initial discussions around it with other countries in Egypt. Seems Australia and the Pacific are well-placed to host in 2026. And if they are successful, that will be really interesting because it's, it's going to really put more onus back on Australia to commit to do much more to cut emissions, particularly if it's going to live up to what its Pacific neighbours would like to see. Mm. Well, turning now to the Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek's first act in her new portfolio was to release the State of the Environment report, which the previous coalition government had sat on ahead of the election. Today, I am publicly releasing the 2021 State of the Environment report. It's one of the most important documents in environmental science. What did this tell us about the state of the natural world? Oh, look, it was incredibly dire. It's really a, a laundry list of terrible results. If we continue on the trajectory that we are on, the precious places, landscapes, animals and plants that we think of when we think of home may not be here for our kids and grandkids. Uh, this is a report that's a five-yearly document. It talked about how the health of the environment had was poor overall. Uh, more than 200 animal and plant species were listed as threatened. We know that Australia already has one of the highest rates of species decline in the developed world. It's lost more mammal species than any other continent. Uh, Tanya Plibersek, the environment minister, described that as an extinction capital. Look, there, there are so many stats you could call out. Hundreds of thousands of hectares of forest are still being cleared every year. Mm. Uh, most of it, without even being referred to Canberra for approval under the national environment laws, which means there's no one place that has oversight over all of this destruction. So it was very hard to find many positive stories out of that. One last thing I should say is there were 19 ecosystems across the country that were uh, described as on the brink of collapse or near collapse. Mm. And that the ramifications of all this are not just on, you know, fluffy, fuzzy creatures and insects and plants, but they actually have real ramifications for human lives. We rely on what the natural environment provides for us. So it was a very dire picture. Yeah, so a pretty grim picture of the Australian environment coming into this new government. What were some of the other big environmental stories from this year? 
Well, headline-grabbing uh, stories included uh, koala, obviously one of our iconic species becoming officially listed as endangered in Queensland, New South Wales and the ACT. Uh, land clearing and bushfires have just had a really dramatic impact over a short period of time. Ten years ago, it wasn't listed at all as a, a species at risk. Uh, the greater glider is also worth mentioning. It's Australia's largest gliding mammal, a really beautiful creature. Uh, its listing was changed from vulnerable to endangered, again, in part due to the impact of logging as well as bushfires. And these are just the charismatic species that get headlines. There are countless uh, species that aren't as fluffy and cute that we don't talk about with, and we don't prioritise in the same way. The Great Barrier Reef continues to be a story of decline. The vibrant colours of the world's most extensive coral reef system are fading. Despite there being some short-term good news this year, marine scientists recorded the highest level of coral cover in 36 years in the north and central areas of the reef system. But they also warned that any recovery could be quickly overturned by global heating. We're seeing stress in this ecosystem at a frequency, at a spatial scale that has never been seen before. There was a fourth year of mass bleaching and a UN-backed mission to the reef in March concluded that the coral system should be placed on the World Heritage in Danger list or wrote to the government in a way that suggested if we don't respond, that's quite likely to happen. Mammals, turtles, whales all depend on this beautiful, spectacular ecosystem to survive and live the way that they have for thousands of years. And there are fears there could be more bleaching again this summer. Ocean temperatures are really elevated again. So I guess, you know, the story on um, environment change is generally one of doom and gloom. And the thing that kind of runs through all of it is that at the moment, the response by our authorities to try to deal with these problems is not up to standard and hasn't been for a very long time. Well, Labor recently promised to repair some of this doom and gloom by overhauling Australia's national environment laws. These are the laws that are supposed to protect our threatened species and natural environment. Former head of the ACCC, Graeme Samuel, reviewed those laws two years ago. He said they were failing Australia's environment and recommended that they be overhauled. But the coalition never officially responded to the Samuel review. So what has Labor said it will do about this? Yeah, so we finally, two years on, uh, got a formal response from the federal government that has the potential to dramatically reform how we deal with environmental problems in Australia, though a lot of the detail is still to come as they draw up legislation next year. Mm -hmm. The big uh, headline grabbing elements are the creation of an environment protection agency, an EPA nationally, which we've never had before. This actually wasn't one of Samuel's recommendations. Plibersec's gone further. Plibersec has said it will be it will be independent, have decision making powers over whether developments proceed or not, and a role in enforcing the laws across the country. So there's reasons to be hopeful there, though the, the scale of what needs to be turned around is massive. Um, and Plibersec has described this as a nature-positive plan that's a win for both the environment and business. Now, that's that's clearly a big call. You know, let's see. What do you think will be most important to the legislation succeeding next year? There's so much detail still to be coloured in, right? It's like a, it's a, like at the moment, like a, a really promising colouring in book, but we really <laughs> have to see what the shades are once we get the detail. I think the two big things that uh, unanswered are funding and urgency. Um, we need these changes to come in urgently and, at the, and it's going to require significant funding. And the Minister says we'll see that in the budget. Let's see. 
Next, how will Australia manage the future of fossil fuels? Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. When I've got a long bus journey or a lazy weekend morning ahead of me, I love reading a long, beautifully written feature. But I feel like I always find them by accident while endlessly scrolling the internet. If you have the same problem, we've got something for you. It's called Five Great Reads. It's a newsletter that we're relaunching and every Saturday morning we'll send five immersive Guardian reads from across the world. You can sign up right now by visiting the Guardian site or searching for Five Great Reads. Okay, back to the episode. Adam, let's talk about some of the new environment and climate policies we can expect to see next year. First, electric vehicles. Last month, the government passed a bill to make them cheaper. How could that change the uptake of EVs next year? I think gradually. I think that, I mean, it it removes two taxes uh, on EVs that will have some impact. The problem in some part is lack of supply Uh, That's a global problem, but at the moment, there's not a real encouragement for car makers to sell EVs at a reasonable price, like models that are cheap in Australia, because we don't have policies in place to support them that other countries do. Labor's now working on a policy that could really change that. If they go ahead with what they've suggested they will, a fuel efficiency standard, which will mean emissions from cars have to be cut over time. That's a clear signal that uh, new petrol and diesel cars will be phased out over a period and will be instead moved towards new clean cars, and that will mostly mean EVs. And that could, I think, will make a really transformational change over the next decade. So we've talked about a number of ways the government is responding to the climate crisis. It's setting emissions targets, responding to natural disasters, and trying to influence international climate talks. But I think the really big challenge for this government will be how it deals with big industrial polluters and their emissions. What could we see happen on that front in the new year? So the government's been working on a plan that will start to gradually cut emissions from 215 big industrial polluting sites. And this is the big political challenge for them on climate change in 2023, I think. Um, We probably won't see that until January now. They want to have it in place by July 1 and how they manage that, who they require to cut emissions at what pace, how much they allow them to use carbon offsets, how much funding they might flick into it to try and help big polluters make cuts. All these questions we don't know the answers to. There'll be a lot of political pressure around it. Getting it through parliament won't be easy and navigating the pressure from business groups won't be easy. But hopefully, all being well, come July 1, we all have a scheme in place that will start to deal with big industrial emissions, which have been increasing and increasing and increasing. The big question for Australia, and it's bigger than government, right, is the future of fossil fuels. Renewables are the future, but we're also pretending that we can have gas developments, new gas fields open up and go on forever. Coal will gradually ebb away, not fast enough, perhaps, but it is happening. But gas, we're still acting as though that's not a significant part of the problem. What do you mean by that? I mean, we know that the former coalition government had planned a a so-called gas-led recovery, which was going to open up a bunch of untapped gas basins for development. 
What's Labor's position on new gas developments? What one of the things they have done is remove subsidies, mostly from new gas developments that the coalition had promised, but they're not completely gone. Globally, the impact that Australia will have on the climate is the major gas developments that are being proposed, particularly off the north of the country. If they all go ahead, they will add substantially to international emissions. All the evidence from the International Energy Agency, from UN climate bodies tells us that it is, and we shouldn't be opening new fields. So a question for everybody, the business community, the federal government, state governments, the Western Australian government in particular, is what are we going to do about gas and are we going to continue to pretend that it's not part of the problem? And I think what happens with that will be one of the big questions of 2023. That was Adam Morton, Climate and Environment Editor at Guardian Australia. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and myself. Sound design and mixing was by Camilla Hannan. The executive producer for this episode was Gabrielle Jackson. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear historian Rachel Franks talk about what it's like living in the head of a real-life hangman in colonial Australia who also had a missing nose. So here is this guy with the absolute worst job on the government books and he gets stressed every day and he takes the shame of his profession, he takes the taunting of children because of his disfigurement and nothing really stops him from going to work and still trying to be the best employee that he can be. Subscribe now to book it in on your favourite podcast player and listen to this episode with Rachel Franks on Thursday.